Every time we see the women's ensemble up there, we know we're in for something special. Thank you, ladies, once again. Well, I want to add my welcome to that of Pastor Ellis's for all of you who have braved the blizzard-like conditions <laughs> and made it here this morning anyhow. We're really very proud of you. Uh, last uh, Tuesday, our staff had a, what we call big-time staff fun. We do it once in a while. This was our Harvest Day celebration, and we topped it off with a, a pumpkin carving competition, and I just thought I'd share with you some of the results. I liked almost all of the entries. Yeah, that's a fun one. Take a look at the rest of them. Yeah. That was the winner, I think. I liked all of the entries except for the following one. I found this very disrespectful. (laughs) And I particularly did not appreciate the devil's horns that they managed to... (laughs) That is not job security, I'm just telling you. But maybe it illustrates what Paul has been trying to teach us as we continue on our journey through uh, the, the letter to the Romans. Here's what he's been saying again and again in different ways. Whatever we pretend to be, Whatever we wish to appear to be on the outside, there is a devilish side to us all. There's a sin nature that we cannot cover up and that only God can repair. Last week, we celebrated the remarkable epic moment, the 500th anniversary of the launch of the Reformation that came about when Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses, 95 topics for conversation on the Wittenberg church door. And... um, and as the, as the Reformation gained steam, he never intended to split the church, but as the Reformation gained steam, those, those 95 topics he wanted to talk down began to be synthesized into five really key issues that all of the Reformers held to. They became the kind of the five talking points of the Reformation, and they called them the five solas, the five solas. The word sola is Latin for only only. And so the five solas of the Reformation, you would, um, I bet you can translate most of these, would be sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, sola Christus, and sola Deo gloria. I'll go ahead and translate them. Only scripture, only grace, only faith, only Christ, and only for the glory of God. So those were the five solas of Reformed Orthodoxy. And I should say, by the way, they still are. Anytime a church or a denomination begins to let loose its grip on any one of these solas, as did our own denomination from which we left, then you begin to see it slide into a very dangerous theological uh, uh, tailspin. The heart of the solas that you see listed up there really can be found in this uh, epic passage of Scripture that we looked at last week. I want to return to it because it's going to launch us into the next part of our study of the book of Romans. But I want to take us back to this magnificent passage of Romans chapter 3. And by the way, the first little chunk, 323, I want you to memorize it. And as we proceed through the year, I'm going to give you five passages that I want you to memorize, kind of the core of the of the theology of Romans. But the first one starts right here, Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know that one, right? Say it with me again. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let me go on with the rest of that text, though. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And then we drop down to Romans 3, 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith without regard to the works of the law. One is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. This is the word of the Lord. And we do say thank you, God, for this magnificent gospel um, passage that speaks to us of your love for us, our need for you, and the salvation that you have offered to us. May it come to life and to light for us in a way that it never has before as we consider this portion of your word. Holy Spirit, do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Justified by faith. Say that out loud. That word justified and that phrase justified by faith appears in some form more than 50 times in the book of Romans. So even though I touched on it last week, it, I can hardly underscore it enough because it is at the core of the heartbeat of this gospel message that Paul is trying to convey to his readers and, and 2,000 years later to us as well, justified by faith. So let me remind you of what I shared with you last week. Justified is a word that comes from the courtroom. Remember? It is the image of a guilty man standing before the judge. He is guilty as charged. They caught him on videotape. There's no question that he has done what he has done. And he stands there before the judge waiting to hear what he expects to hear, which is, you are guilty and here is your sentence. Instead, much to his shock, what he hears from the judge instead is, you are acquitted. You are justified. You are pardoned. That is what the word justified means. And we would say, how is that possible? As we've been following along the the logic of Paul through these last two chapters especially, he has spent these two chapters underscoring in more ways than we can count the ways that every single human being falls short of the glory of God. Every single human being has sinned. He says the Jews have sinned, the Gentiles have sinned. There's not one human being who who stands righteous in his own sake before the Lord, he says. We are not, in fact, innocent So then how could a holy judge acquit us of our obvious guilt? And here we come to that second fancy word that we learned last week. Remember what it is. Propitiation. Say it. Propitiation. Propitiation. We move from the courthouse to the the tabernacle, to the the temple. Propitiation, as I will remind you, was a, a sin sacrifice. And to give you more detail, when it came time to do the sin sacrifice, the propitiation, the priest would go up to the animal that was going to be sacrificed, a perfect, pure lamb that was going to be sacrificed. He would place his hands on the head of that lamb. And in so doing, he would transmit all of the sins of the people upon that lamb, into that lamb. And of course, then that lamb's throat was cut and the blood was sprinkled on the altar And the the sins of the people for a moment were set aside. They were covered. They were washed away. They weren't swept under the rug. But there was a propitiation for them. And that's the image that we get that Paul's trying to raise back up for us. But the propitiation, of course, 
in this case, was not a temporary, provisional lamb that was slain and put on the altar, but rather it is the blood of the Lamb of God who is sacrificed, who, who, who is taking away the sins of the world. It's the blood of the Lord Jesus who became the perfect and permanent propitiation for all who would believe. And so here's the image that I would like to add. I already got a robe. I'm going to put another one on. I'm chilly. But every one of you has a big terry cloth robe like this, and you probably had it when, when you had children, or you have it when you have grandchildren on a cold day like today in blizzardy conditions. Those children are going to, to come up to you, and they're cold. And what do you do? You just wrap them up. You hide them in that robe. Really, there is an, in, uh, an image, there's a sense in which that's the image of what happens before God. Because we stand before the Lord, and yet it is Christ who comes up in his righteousness, and he wraps our filthy rags, he wraps us up in himself. And so when God looks down upon us, he does not see the sin that is there, but rather he sees the righteousness of his perfect son, the propitiation, the sin sacrifice that was offered for us. Do you get this? Shake your heads as if you do. (laughs) Listen, this is so important. This is the core. If we do not understand this, we do not understand this idea of propitiation, then we do not understand justification by faith. And we miss the entire gospel. We miss the entire thrust of the Reformation too, by the way. It was driving home this point that drove Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and Beza and uh, Bullinger and all of the rest of them to say, we have lost something to which we must return. And that's why Paul pounds away on these themes again and again and again, even in these early chapters of Romans. And he's, he's doing so because his reader, and especially the Jewish believers, Jews who came to believe that Jesus was in fact the Messiah and received him. They would have had a hard time digesting the fact that God's salvation was a free gift of grace available to all and had nothing whatsoever to do with rule-keeping, meritorious behavior on the part of the recipient. And now comes a very gutsy move on the part of Paul. He's about to offer a killer illustration that will drive home this point and particularly drive it home for his Jewish readers because he picks as the topic of his illustration the, the, the Jew par excellence, the, the one who was the founder of the Jewish people, the father of the Jewish nation. Who was that? Abraham, exactly. Abraham, I want you to, re- if, you're, if you're new to this religious stuff, this Christian stuff, let me just remind you. We go back to the very first book of the Bible and find Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. After the fall of the Garden of Eden, after humanity has thrown away the relationship they have with God, God reaches out to this pagan in Ur of the Chaldees named Abram at the time. He would change his name later. And he says, hey, I'm God. You may not know me. I'm the only God, by the way, and I've got a deal for you. I've got a covenant I want to make with you. I will be your God. And you will be my man. And I'm going to make a great people out of you. Even though you and your wife are old and barren, I'm going to breathe life into you, and I'm going to create a great nation. And out of this nation, I am going to bless the entire world. And now I want you to leave the place you know and go to a place that I'm not even going to tell you where it is yet. You just got to trust me, and you got to go. What do you say? And Abram, to his credit, says, I'm in. He says, okay, I will do it. God even had a very special sign, a special seal of 
that covenant that he had made with Abraham. What was that deal? What was the sign of that covenant? Circumcision. Say that word. Some, none of the men said the word. Listen, I'll be honest. I can think of other ways that I'd rather seal a deal. Fist pump, high five, a very somber handshake. Any of those things, as far as I'm concerned, would be better. But no, that's not what the Lord taught, uh, chose. He chose circumcision as the, the sign that would mark the fact that Abraham was his specially chosen, specially called, specially appointed ambassador to the world. Abraham was Judaism. He was the epitome of Judaism. So guess who Paul uses to illustrate his redefined doctrine of salvation? It's Abraham. And so if chapter 3 was basically Paul's thesis statement about justification by faith, chapter 4 is his case study. So turn with me to chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, and listen to the word of the Lord. Paul writes, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? In other words, by his own efforts. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, another translation of that word is wicked, who believes in him who, tra- who justifies the wicked, his faith is counted as righteousness. If you were paying attention three times, you would have heard in that passage the word counted, counted. Actually, it appears eight times in this passage of Scripture. And another translation for it would be credited, credited. And Paul, in order to explain what he means when he says it was counted or it was credited to Abraham as righteousness, he takes us to the business world. He reminds those of us who have a job, who show up at our appointed hour, who do our appointed task, and who draw our earned wages, our salary. He said, That's, you got that coming to you. You worked for that. You earned that. And for those of you who are still in the work world, if you are like me, you don't even see a paycheck anymore. They deposit it, they credit it directly to your account. If I go online, I'm going to see that my wages, what I have earned because I have worked for them, they have been deposited to the credit side of my account ledger. Although, sometimes we are in for a surprise when we open that account, aren't we? I I worked in Bakersfield as a youth pastor and a youth minister for about nine years, and uh, in the early days of that ministry, I was poor as a church mouse and sometimes had a little trouble paying all the bills. And I remember one time going into the bank to find out my account balance. And there will be some of you who are younger who will be horrified to discover that was the only way you would find out your account balance online, schmonline. I mean, if you want to know what you got, go ask the teller. So I went in and I asked the teller how much I had and she looked it up and she said, this amount. I said, that can't possibly be right. That's, that's too much. I don't have that much money. And she said, well, let me look again. She went back. She looked again. And she said, no, sir, that is the, your account balance. And she said, it appears that someone made a deposit to your account. And to this day, I have no idea who did that. 
But it was an unexpected gift, and it was a, I saw, thought it was a godsend, literally a godsend. Now, did I earn that deposit? No. Was that my due? No. Someone in their grace credited money to my account. And that, Paul says, is what happened between God and Abraham. Paul says, Abraham believed God. He trusted God, and God deposited righteousness into his account. It was absolutely unmerited. It was unearned. It wasn't a a product of his good works. As a matter of fact, when God appeared to Abraham, he was still a pagan worshiping idols in Ur of the Chaldees. But God offered a covenant And Abraham took him at his word. And because he believed God, we are told that that he was credited to him as righteousness, as a holy standing before the Lord that he had not earned. If you'd been a Jewish reader, however, you would have said, wait a second, Paul, that's not right. Because that is not at all what the rabbis had taught. All of the centuries they taught that the reason God made covenant with Abraham was because of his obedience. He was circumcised. He obeyed the law. Because of his good works, God looked favorably upon him, and that's why he was given righteousness. In other words, God responded to the good works, the works of the flesh that Abraham offered up. But Paul is about to drop a major stink bomb on that party too. Take a look at verse 9. Is this blessing... Only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. This was a a shocking revelation of simple logic that they could have come to if they paid attention to their own scriptures. Paul says Abraham could not have been declared righteous because he was circumcised. Why? Because God made his covenant with Abraham and said that it was counted to him as righteous in chapter 15. Abraham isn't circumcised until chapter 17, 24 years later when he's 99 years old. And it couldn't be that because Abraham was following all of the law of God. Why? Because God's law wasn't given for another 400 years when Moses received it from on the top of Sinai. In other words, Paul is proving to the rule-following Jews that the religious work of circumcision could not possibly be a prerequisite for Abraham's righteousness because God declared him righteous while he was still an uncircumcised pagan. Circumcision was a sign of his righteousness. It was not the cause of it. Do you understand? And if that didn't shake him up, Paul concludes with by pointing out that when you really think about it, Abraham was really the father of the Gentiles before he was the father of the Jews. He says this in chapter 4, verse 11. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised. It's almost like the Jews are a second thought, but his first desire was to reach out to the uncircumcised Gentiles. 
Here's what Paul is trying to say with all of this. He said, God did it all. It was God who reached out to Abraham. God who called Abraham into a covenant relationship. God who breathed new life into old barren bodies. God did everything. And we are told all that remained for Abraham was to do, to do, was to respond in belief. Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. And of course, the point Paul would make for us is that is all that's left for us to do too. The only thing that we can do to receive this incredible grace gift, Paul would say, is believe it. Have faith in it. And even that we must be careful because we Christians want to feel like we're contributing something to it. And so we end up making faith itself and a work. We need to be clear that even faith is not a contribution to our salvation. It's not as if God contributes the gift of salvation and we contribute our good, strong faith in partnership. Otherwise, even faith becomes a work by which we can at least pay for part of what we have received. Why? Because we really don't like receiving gifts very much. We would rather give it, but it makes us uncomfortable when someone lavishes a gift upon us. And we like to think that if we have strong faith, if we have real faith, if we have pure faith, then we are helping God in our salvation. And Paul would say, no, faith is simply receiving all that God has done for you. It is the the man who's drinking down the water, the parched man who's drinking down the water that has been offered to him. Or as one commentator put it, faith is like the hands of a beggar, only useful if empty. Now, if you were a religious Jew, raised to believe that by doing good works, by being circumcised, by obeying the law, by going to synagogue, by loving your neighbor, that you would earn God's favor... In other words, if if all your religious life you assumed God liked you better than the Gentiles, that he saved you because you behaved yourself and obeyed his rules, then everything that Paul has just said would have been a shocking and outrageous claim. And that's that's what Paul's Jewish readers would have felt. And before you dismiss this part of the conversation as irrelevant, since most of us probably are not Jewish, may I just say this? The average American Christian believes something like the same thing. He obeys the rules, mostly. He goes to church, usually. He is nice to his neighbors, occasionally. He's certainly better than that mean, oh, what's-his-face next door. The average American Christian views God like Santa Claus. He's got a naughty list and a nice list. And if you're mostly nice, you get the goodies. And as long as God grades on the curve, there are going to be plenty of naughtier people. But comparison, you look pretty darn good. Unfortunately, God doesn't grade on the curve. It is pass-fail. And what is the standard for pass What is the standard for God's passing grade? 100% perfection. When our daughter Rachel graduated from Whitworth, during the commencement there was a small group of students who were awarded the President's Cup, which commemorated those or honored those who had uh, a perfect four-point GPA. Alas, our daughter was not on that list. 
she had a pathetic 3.98 GPA. <laughs> because she got two A minuses, one of them in her jazz band when she had to miss a rehearsal when she came home for Thanksgiving. And if you know Rachel, she was not happy to not be on that list. And of course, we were mortified. <laughs> we lowered our head in shame when she hardly believed she deserved that diploma. We just had to look away. But that is something like what Rachel did feel. And believe me, she tried to fix it. She petitioned professors. She petitioned deans. She pestered. She offered to do extra credit. Anything to reach the mark of perfection. But it was too late. And she fell short. And it didn't matter that she barely fell short. She was as truly off the list as those who were barely scraping by D students were off the list. We may be better than a lot of people that we know. We may behave better than a lot of folks around us. But God does not grade on a curve. It is pass-fail. His standard is 100%. It is unattainable. There is no president's list in heaven. But the good news is this, that in his grace, God has credited to our account the perfection of his son. We don't have to try harder. We don't have to petition him further. We don't have to go to our knees again and again and beg him. We simply believe and receive this incredibly kind gift that he has offered to us. That is justification by faith. We are made holy solely by the saving work of Jesus, who was sent as a supreme act of grace by our Heavenly Father. And honestly, this sticks in the craw of most human beings for the reason I already shared. We are uncomfortable with lavish gifts. We want to believe that we bring something to the table. Most Christians and virtually all religious Americans, spiritual Americans as they describe themselves, they view salvation as a collaborative effort. God does his part, we do our part, and voila, we are saved. But justification by faith says that all we can do is believe and receive this incredible grace gift of God. John Stott, one of my favorite theologians, whose commentary on Romans I really value, he has this to say. No other religion proclaims a free forgiveness and a new life to those who have done nothing to deserve it, but a lot to deserve judgment instead. On the contrary, all other systems teach some form of self-salvation through good works of religion, righteousness, or philanthropy. Listen to this. Christianity, by contrast, is not in its essence a religion at all. It is a gospel, the gospel, good news that God's grace has turned away his wrath, that God's son has died our death and borne our judgment, that God has mercy on the undeserving, and that there is nothing left for us to do or even contribute. Faith's only function is to receive what grace offers. I love that last line. Faith's only function is to receive what grace offers. Unfortunately, I'll bet there are scores of people here who still don't quite get this. So to drive this home, I want to throw out a hypothetical, okay? What I want you to do is formulate your answer to the following question. Let's say that you come to the gates of heaven, God is standing there, and and he said, why should I let you into my heaven? 
what will your response be? And I don't want to just do this rhetorically. I want to ask you right now, I'm going to give you a moment. Formulate the first sentence of your response to God's question. Why should I let you into my heaven? Go ahead, think about it. Close your eyes if you need to to focus. What would your answer to that question be? You ready? Now, if your answer started with the words, because I, it is probably wrong. Because I tried to be a good person. Because I obeyed the Ten Commandments. Because I was a member of Chapel Hill. That carries a lot of weight. Because I was a good father, a good husband, a good son, because I took care of my mother in her last days. Because I, if that is your gut response, then you do not yet understand justification by faith. The only answer to that hypothetical question must start with, because you, because you loved me, God, because you saved me, God, because you reached out to me through your Son, God, because you sent your Holy Spirit to woo me and to forgive me and to change me and to transform me, because you... The only answer we can offer for why we are saved starts with you, not I. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. I'll bet in a crowd this size there are people who maybe have been coming to church all of their life but their gut reaction to the question of why should I let you into heaven? What is it that makes you a Christian? Their gut reaction is, because I. Look at the good person I am. Look at how I try to be nice to my neighbors. Look how I do this and I do that. Lord, we so desperately want to be a player. We so desperately want to contribute something to our own salvation so that we have some control If that is you, if you have never quite grasped the fact that the only way that you come to salvation is to simply say thank you, thank you for the gift that God has done all of, then I want to invite you right now to receive this incredible gift perhaps for the first time. And so I'm going to pray and I would invite you to pray silently and And if you've prayed this prayer before, just join in as a reaffirmation of your faith. Just pray this prayer after me. Dear God, I thank you for loving me. I see now how broken I am. I see now that nothing I bring to you can contribute to my salvation. I see now that you have done it all. And apart from your love, your initiative, your grace, your son, I am lost And so, God, in all humility, I say thank you. And I receive the gift that you have offered in your son, Jesus Christ. I believe that what you say is true. And I thank you that because of your work, I'm adopted into your family, saved forever. I offer this prayer of gratitude in the name of Jesus. Amen.